Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. Brexit tomorrow, Friday, 31st of January. Finally, finally. Finally, the UK leaves the European Union after more than three and a half years of sometimes tortuous wrangling. Here in France, President Emmanuel Macron is calling it a sad day for all. Yes, and the French foreign minister said the hardest part is ahead. He may well be right. Not much will actually change on that day, except for you have the British MEPs will be leaving the European Parliament. France will be picking up five extra seats in that body. Yeah, basically the 11th month transition period now begins, and that is a source of anxiety for many Brits living here in France. What will be their rights? What will happen to uh, trading and that kind of thing? France has the second largest British community in Europe after Spain. There are around 200,000 British citizens here. Some of them also have French nationality, but those that don't are starting to feel a little nervous. So, so what about you? I mean, you're one of those 200,000 Brits. You've been living in France for a very long time. Yeah, a long time. Still no French nationality. Mm. I haven't felt too worried up till now. I have what they call a carte de séjour, a residency permit, which allows me to carry on. Uh, moving within the European Union, but traveling backwards and forwards to the UK will eventually become more complicated. Because you're going to so, be a foreigner. Exactly. Coming I'm have to, the, yeah. yeah, I'm going to have to go through that special queue along mm. with the non-EU nationals when I go to the airport mm. or take the Eurostar. So now I'm Seriously, I have to get French nationality just to feel really totally secure. There was a freaky case in the news this week of a British carpenter in Dordogne, that's in southwest France. He's one of 10,000 British expats who've chosen to settle in that particularly picturesque region. There he was, happy as Larry, comfortable that after building a life and a family here in France, uh, he's been here for 27 years, that mm. he would easily get French citizenship. But his application was turned down because... Oh he didn't have, they say, sufficient and stable resources. Basically, he didn't make enough money to become French? Exactly. Now, more than 30,000 people have signed a petition in France uh, in support of him. So it's nice to see that kind of solidarity. But it's true that the terms on which Brits will be allowed to remain in France is still being worked out. There's talk of a points-based system which may be related to your earning capacity. Mm. The carpenter himself won't get deported because his kids are French, but you can imagine he's disconcerted to say the least. I can imagine, yeah, it's definitely stressful. Indeed, and there are many other Brits in the town of Imi in Dordogne who are feeling similarly worried. One in ten of the 2,600 residents there are British. Oh, wow, that's a lot. That's massive. It's a sort of little England (laughs) uh, in the French countryside. They settled there for the pleasant climate, the landscape, the quality of life. But they're now wondering just what the future has in store. Brexit c'est inexplicable. C'est une stupidité énorme. C'est très dangereuse. C'est un (laughs) casse-tête. Inexplicable, stupid, dangerous, baffling. That's how some British expats living in Ime describe Brexit. At the Café des Arts in the centre of town, owner Julia Manwaring says half her clients are British, half are French. She herself is British and retired to Ime eight years ago. During the summer months, she does a roaring trade with tourists who flock to this picturesque area for its castles, perch villages, truffles and bergeret wine. But she's worried about what will happen to health care and pension after Brexit. I am concerned, like everybody. I have a house here. I work here. I pay taxes here. I want to stay here permanently. I use the health service. I have a French car. 
so I would like to stay here for, and I am worried that Brexit might interfere particularly with my health and my pension because I have an English pension I draw here. Julia considers herself lucky she tops up her state pension by running the cafe. But it's a different story for those, and there are many, who are entirely dependent on their UK pensions. The exchange rate is difficult for people, especially my customers, who are on a fixed pension, just the minimum state pension. It is very difficult because the value of their pensions is dropping and they are struggling to buy food and to heat their houses, you know? So it's very difficult, and that could get much, much worse. Julia isn't the only one worried about fluctuating exchange rates. Lisa moved here with her family four years ago and works as an estate agent in Eme. She says business was booming in the lead-up to Brexit, as many British people were keen to buy up properties in Dordogne. But she's not sure that demand will continue. We don't know what's going to happen with the exchange rate. At the moment, it's relatively stable. But if it weakens, then house buying is going to become more difficult. Holidays are going to become more expensive. So it affects my work here in the agency, and it affects my work at home with Arjits. So it kind of leaves us a little bit unsure, a little bit unstable. So, you know, I wish it had never happened, really. Susan Woodbridge, a teacher in her 40s, drops by the Café des Arts for a cup of tea. She moved to Emé two years ago and doesn't have French nationality. She's lost a lot of sleep over Brexit. I feel completely betrayed and it's not a nice feeling now to feel that I'm not part of a union that I really wanted to remain part of. So for me it really feels like a betrayal. I am not convinced that it will be an easy, smooth process. And the problem is, now, because we're in the situation where we are obliged to present ourselves to the authorities in order to have permission to live here, that in itself is worrying to me, because it may be fine, but they do have the right to ask you to leave, and that is the bottom line, and that is what makes me so unhappy and so angry that I'm in that position. The mayor of Imi, Jérôme Bétail, recognises that British expats have brought a lot to the town, helping to keep school numbers up, supporting local shops and services, so he wouldn't want to lose them. He promises to help steer them through all the uncertainty. This transitional period is extremely complicated for them, but hasn't changed anything for us. We haven't had a big increase in the number of applications for French citizenship, but we haven't seen a lot more people leaving either, so I'm not worried. We have to wait and see what happens now. Will they need visas? what the impact will be on access to health care and exchanging euros into pounds. It all needs sorting out. I think we'll help people with the procedures so they can overcome those hurdles. Lisa hopes to stay in Emmet or in France, well, anywhere but the UK. Me and my family, uh, we're staying in Emmet. We live just outside Emmet. Um, it's been very welcoming to us. It's been very accommodating with the language uh, and the children at school. Um, our family life has changed for the better. Life in France has helped us change for the better. So we have no intention of going back to England, whether we stay in this area in the next 10 years or in France or somewhere else in Europe, we don't know. But uh, we're very excited to be in Europe and in France at the moment. Yes. <laughs>
So at least, Sarah, as we can hear, they've become convinced Europeans through this whole process. And those interviews, by the way, were done by Laurent Steele. So now we head to the Larzac, a plateau in southwestern France in the Lozère department. That's the country's least populated area. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to the Cousse Mijan, this wide open plateau with even fewer people than the rest of Lozère. The few people who do live there are sheep farmers. And in 400 hectares of land up on this plateau, a small wildlife conservation organization has been raising wild horses. That sounds a bit weird, the idea of raising wild animals. Yeah, yeah, but for 30 years, this group's been working to allow what's called Prezhvalsky horses to roam free on this plateau in France and then reintroduce them to their natural habitat thousands of kilometers away in Mongolia. Hmm. There, the horses are known as taki horses, and they're thought to be the ancestors of today's domestic horses. Now, these horses were pretty much extinct by the 1960s. There are only a few specimens of them living in zoos. In 1993, this group, this French group, took 11 of them out of zoos, brought them to the Cosmijon, and for 10 years, they allowed them to become truly wild, sort of roaming around free. It took two to three generations. Um, in 2004, they flew 22 of them to Mongolia. Today, there are 89 of these horses in Mongolia, 29 in France. Zinat Hansrod went for a visit. This is around the village of Le Villaret, and I talked to her about the experience. So, Zina, this Cousse Maison is hours away from Paris. Can you describe it? It's um, uh, this plateau with... Uh, when I, I was there in December, the grasses were dry and short. It was all brownish in color. The trees are stocky, almost shrub-like. So, really, no civilization. You look in the distance, you don't see buildings, you don't really see roads. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. Yeah, so it's interesting to think this is France. I mean, this is a very dense country, but, and, and yet you have no civilization no, for to, kilometers to, on end. To walk around in the evening, we had to use the torch from our cell phones because there was no no street lights nothing so from what i understand and what's interesting for this story is that it, it has a sort of similarity to the mongolian steppes precisely right? yes and here you can hear Mohamed Zirendoj, the executive director of KTT, Komin Talintaki, the Mongolian partner organization to the association in France. The landscape is close to the area we have the horses in Mongolia now. And, and the weather? And the weather is the, uh, also the closest, I mean, temperature reach minus 20 in winter here. So, because we, Mongolia, is an extreme country of uh, climate, so this is the best for the preparation as a training before they released into the wild. So, we're talking this huge, desolate space, very sparsely populated, um, and there are horses there, 29 of them. You guys came across them. How close could you get? not that close because they're supposed to be wild animals so you do not want too much human interaction. Laurent Tatin, the Science and Conservation Programs Manager of TAC, walk with me to the group of horses we met. How far away are we from the family of oh, horses? Now we are about 40-50 meters from the, from the group. And they, they're not shy. They are really used to be observed and because we need to collect some data on behavior, 
on uh, earth, but we avoid any interaction with them. You mean like touching them? Not touching, of course, and not approaching too much. So now right, we are right. 40 meters and we will stay here around. Do you know them? Do you know their names? Yes, yes. We have to know each individual. There is the stallion, Louravi, is here in front of us. And how many mares does he have? Uh, something like eight. What do these horses actually look like? You wouldn't be able to say they're wild horses. Um, well, they look I, like regular horses, as far as you can tell. <laughs> they are relatively small and stocky, mm. um, with a beige to reddish-brown coat. They have this distinctive erect dark mane and stripes across the legs below the knee. So, you know, you can't tell they're wild, but they really are wild. Absolutely. The Przewalski, they've never been domesticated. They used to roam across Europe and Russia. And in the Lascaux prehistoric caves in France, you can see drawings of horses looking very much like the Przewalski. There are, though, some wild horses in Camargue, no? But that's not the same thing. The horses in Camargue were once domesticated and then went back to being wild. So they're roaming in this wide open space here in France, um, some transferred to Mongolia. But here in France, you know, there are people. <laughs> What's the interaction between the French people and these horses? The Le Villaret site is located in the least populated area in France, Lozère. There's hardly anyone there. Mm. Even though Laurent Tatin says they had discussions with the locals about bringing in wild horses in the area. One of the first challenges was to be accepted by the local people here around because we are breeding not sheep, but wild horses. So the issue, you know, it's not sheep, it's horses. But of course, these horses are the ideas to go to Mongolia. There's a different, from what I understand, a different interaction there. Absolutely. In Mongolia, the horses from Tak in Le Villare go to Sia reserve site. And that's 14,000 hectares as opposed to the 400 hectares in France. So much bigger. Much bigger. But they do have nomadic tribes living there. And this is where the human interaction does pose a challenge. So the organization in Mongolia work with the local communities to ensure that there is no threat to the horses when it comes to grazing and when it comes to earning a livelihood. Yeah, so this is so interesting because you're going from this very desolate part of France, the least populated part of France with these wild horses, bringing them to Mongolia, back to Mongolia, essentially, reintroducing in the wild. Um, this project of sort of bringing back the wild is, is interesting. I mean, in the context, even we've talked in the past on this podcast about reintroducing wolves and bears in, in the French wilderness, this sort of going back to the wild. And I guess, you know, why are people so interested in, in bringing back these these wild animals? Why do we need to protect the coral reefs and the barrier reef, why do we need to protect rhinos and elephants? I think Laurent Tatin sums it very well in this notion of our responsibility as humans towards animals. If we consider that human beings have a responsibility on Earth, it is important to preserve as much as possible the species that are living on this planet. Too. 
So this week was the yearly ritual of handing out of the Michelin stars. For the first time, a Japanese chef got the maximum three stars. This is uh, Chef K Kobayashi for his restaurant K in Paris. Now, these Michelin stars bring in customers, and getting them or losing them can make or break a restaurant. Yeah, this little book, the Michelin Guide, this little red book, really has so much power. Yeah, but it actually didn't start out that way. It took 120 years to get there. À propos, dit, ça me fait penser que j'ai pas retrouvé mon guide Michelin, moi. Et forcément, il y en a un de vous qui a mis la main dessus. Oh, tu commences à nous courir avec ton Michelin, tu sais. J'aime pas les mystères, moi. The first Michelin Guide was introduced in 1900. This was at the Universal Expo. It was an advertisement for Michelin tires. Brothers André and Édouard Michelin had started the bike tire industry a couple years before, but the guide was aimed at car drivers. There were only about 2,400 of them at the time. They were pioneers. And wealthy at per that. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. And the guide provided maps, it provided tourist spots of interest, and importantly, a list of the very few auto mechanics around and doctors, because I guess driving was pretty dangerous at the time. Yeah, roads were appalling. The guide took off along with the car as people started traveling for pleasure. Increasingly, by 1926, the Guide Michelin, as it was called, was launched as a food guide. It had information on places to stop and eat, especially along the N7 highway, which is the main road heading from Paris to the south of France. National 7. Il faut la prendre qu'on aille à Rome à 7. Que l'on soit deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six ou sept. A few years later, the idea of stars were introduced to the guide. We had two and then three in the early 1930s. This was, of course, for truly exceptional meals. And paid holidays were introduced, Sarah, weren't they, in France in 1936 with the Front Populaire. And that contributed to the popularity of this guidebook. Yeah, as more people started to travel, they had time, but they didn't necessarily have the money. Um, here's the guide's director in 1973, many years later. His name's Henri Trichot. And at the time, he started listing places where you could eat food for a good value, this at the time for 15 francs. Je crois que les gens veulent d'abord ne pas perdre de temps et puis autant que possible ne pas perdre d'argent. Here he says, I think people don't want to waste time and especially they don't want to waste money. You can see guides and maps on the back seats of cars and they are equivalent to a spare tire for drivers. It's a funny way of seeing a food guide. Mm. But as uh, more chefs set up their own restaurants, the Michelin Guide took on a much more critical approach to the food. And today, it's a huge industry. You've got teams of two or three Michelin Guide inspectors uh, visiting gourmet restaurants at different seasons, different times of the day to evaluate the food for a start, and then for the very top of the range restaurants, the decor and the presentation and everything. Now, these inspectors are, of course, supposed to show up in secret, but there have been scandals that uh, some of them gave chefs a, a heads up before showing up. And the star rating itself has also come under fire. Uh, the top chef, Marc Vera, recently took Michelin to court to try and get an explanation as to why he lost a third star just a year after he received it. Not good for business there. Indeed. He lost his case, by the way. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and some chefs are even saying having a star trying to keep it is, is just too much pressure. There's a story in 2005 of another top chef, Alain Sanderens, who actually handed in his Michelin stars. Now, in the age of online reviews, sites like TripAdvisor, Yelp, you may think that the guide may be losing some of its relevance. But it still does have an aura here in France in particular. And while the inspectors may not be altogether unbiased, it is one of the rare food guides not to be based on just one trumped up individual's opinion, but several. <laughs>
Albert Camus, the Franco-Algerian writer, philosopher and journalist, died 60 years ago this month in a tragic car accident. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957 and he remains an important figure in France and worldwide, in fact, not just for writing works like L'Etranger, The Outsider and The Plague, but also for his political engagement. He was born into poverty in Algiers, the capital of Algeria, which was France at the time, and he always took the side of the oppressed throughout his life. Yeah, he was a key figure in the French resistance during the Second World War. He wrote a lot about freedom and justice, but contrary to fellow intellectuals like Jean-Paul Sartre at the time, he actually turned his back on communism when Stalin came to power. And despite that, he remained on the left, very close to working people and their concerns. So as France is in the throes of protest movements over low wages for working people, fears over what they see as a, a liberal pension reform plan, Camus seems to be even more relevant. I talked to historian Vincent Duclair, who's recently published a book on Camus, about the importance of the writer's Algerian roots, and I began by asking him whether Camus can be considered a working-class hero. Yes, the expression of working-class hero could apply to Albert Camus, absolutely. Of course, he will not create something like advertising on his poor origins, but after a time of difficulties with this very humble origins because he felt the difference and something like an humiliation, especially when he, he moved to the main high school in, uh, in Alger, which only accept students from the uh, higher class. And, uh, mm. so he, he felt he inadequate. Felt, absolutely. But after that, he understood that this uh, experience of poverty, of suffering, could help him to understand better the, the world and to find his own path in the history in his time. He was a complex figure, wasn't he, politically? On the one hand, very active in the French resistance. He wrote for Le Combat, the journal for the resistance at the time. And then later, he did not come out clearly in favour of the Algerian War of Independence. He did come in for some criticism, as if somehow he should automatically have been in favour of independence for Algeria. I think there is no contradiction between uh, his commitment against Nazism and the Pétain regime and his position on the Algeria war and Algeria independence. Because his engagement in the resistance was an engagement for freedom, for liberty, and uh, he really trusts that the freedom will continue to live in the French spirit and he considered that far from all the treason, the assassination made by many French people and regime, something good and great continue to live in the French spirit. So his resistance was a very patriotic resistance and Camus was not completely against the independence of Algeria. But he was really against this violence created by the revolution from the Algerian nationalists. And he considered that this violence will kill the country, the shared country. He considered that what France did with the colonialism, 
which was a nightmare, especially for the Algerian, France could solve by the liberty of this French spirit. And so his main concern is to create a shared country with the equality between all the communities. And the question of independence was probably not so important. And so, so he thought there could be some kind of cohabitation between the Arab and non-Arab Algerians. Uh, but maybe more, more than a cohabitation. He considered that Arabs and uh, Europeans share the same culture. He, he worked a lot before the, the Second World War in Algiers, in theater, like a young intellectual. He studied a lot the Mediterranean thought, and he considered that the Mediterranean thought is able to be uh, shared by all the people in Algeria. In Algeria now, what do they make of Camus and his stance? Uh, this is a relevant question because Camus, during the beginning of the war and after his death, was considered by the Asian nationalists as a supporter of the colonialism. But now all the liberal intellectual writers, painters, singers in Algeria who also reject the system of violence now recognize Camus as an Algerian, you see. In a period where we are now in France, with a lot of social protest, with uh, the Yellow Vest movement, various questions about social justice, now we have quite a serious revolt against government's pension reform. Albert Camus, where would he be? On the picket lines? It's difficult to know sure. what Camus will do today, but what we know about Camus is first the fact that Camus is very close to the society, to the poor, to people who are persecuted. And of course, the situation of the working class will uh, mobilize uh, Camus for more justice, absolutely sure. But also Camus considered that the main uh, thing in, in society is also preserving the democracy. And so he probably questioned also the way to protest, to be sure that all these arguments against the actual reform will be not arguments against democracy, because after that uh, it will be not possible to contest or to be in strike. That's all for this week, and our thanks to Nicolas Dojo for the mix. If you enjoy this podcast, Spotlight on France, why not subscribe wherever you get your podcasts? You could also drop us a line, spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next week. Bye-bye.